Today's guest is doing his part one step at a time to put the final nail in the coffin of the lazy stoner stereotype. Dan Lamort is a man on the move. He's a working comic and a distance runner training for his first ultra marathon. And you know what he does before and after most of his 10 to 20 mile training runs? Smokes a joint. Dan takes the runner's high quite literally. And we talk about how cannabis helps him get in the zone for pounding out those miles. Comedy in the age of COVID. That time in grade school when he dressed up as an elf. And a lot more. This podcast, my website, Cannaboom, with a K, dot com, and my weekly newsletter, Five Boom Friday, are all focused on how cannabis and CBD can help you achieve better wellness and how to find CBD that's trusted and reliable. You can subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review and help us expand our reach. Thanks to our producer, Danny in Milwaukee. And here now is Dan Lamort. Cannabis is booming, and Cannaboom is on it. Welcome to the Cannaboom Podcast, where we interview experts on the changing story of humans, health, and hemp. From San Diego, here's your host, Tom Stacy. Hey, it's Tom. We're back. This week, we have Dan Lamort, a comedian from New Jersey, who is also known as a runner who likes to get high. So he's given a new wrinkle to the, the runner's eye. How are you doing, Dan? <laughs> Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, I'm known for saying the best way to get the runner's high is to be a runner that's high. <laughs> and I live by that. That's so funny because I have been running for decades and they used to talk about endorphins and those were these chemicals in your brain. But the research has shown it's more related to cannabinoids, to your endogenous cannabinoids and anandamide and all that. So you run stoned as well. <laughs> Back in the day, sure. Yeah. These days, not, not quite as much. But um, so you're putting some miles in. Yeah, I'm at about uh, 60 mile weeks right now. Uh, wow. I do eventually want to get that up to a hundred mile weeks, but, and then beyond that. But right now it's just because I'm, I'm training race specific. I have my first ultra marathon, October 10th, uh, which is a 33 mile race through a sand trail in the pine barrens of New Jersey. So that's kind of what I'm prepping for right now. And I feel like a 33 mile race, you know, 60 to 70 miles a week is pretty acceptable for that. Sure. So I'm kind of staying that there. And uh, yeah, so kind of running stone for me is, I wouldn't say I'm high for all of the runs because I am an endurance runner. So a lot of these runs when I'm going out are, you know, above 15 miles, above 10 miles. You know, if I, if I go out, the least is eight miles. So I'm only smoking a joint before I go out and run. So my routine is kind of the night before I'll roll my, I'll roll a nice big gram and a half cone for the next morning. And then uh, I'll wake up and whenever, whether it's, uh, I, I, I'm usually driving to running trails so say whenever I'm 10 minutes away, I'll light up the joint because it takes about 10 minutes to get down. So right when I get to the run, I have no other choice but to get out and just start running, you know? You know, you talk about couch lock, which becomes a problem. But if you're out there, you're already out there and you're ready to run, you don't have much choice, right? That is what I found, yeah, because don't get me wrong. I mean, uh, I think the reason people associate, you know, the lazy stoner is because weed just helps you do whatever you want to do in that moment. So if you want to relax and you're smoking to relax, you're going to melt into that couch and you're going to look like the lazy stoner. But if you're telling yourself, hey, this weed is propelling the first four or five miles of my run, now it takes on a different meaning. You know, that it, it becomes something that actually, it's kind of like a pre-workout for me. I feel like those first four or five miles are really something else while I'm stoned. You know, just scenery is a little prettier. The joints feel a little looser. It's good because those first few miles you're supposed to just kind of ease into the run so your body's kind of just feeling it all and uh and then i smoke one after i, I don't do any mid 
run, I, you know, whatever, however stoned I am to go out, that's what I stay at. And then when I get home from the run, I smoke one because I do actually feel it helps a lot with the inflammation and it helps a lot with my knee pain. It puts me in a good mood kind of for the rest of the day to not feel as much of the brunt on the joints. Right. If you're putting in 60 miles a week, yeah, you have some recovery for sure. I did a few marathons and I maxed out at about 65 a week. And boy, when you hit the pillow after a 20 miler, it's a delicious kind of sleep. You're just, it's lights out. It is. And, uh, it's weird. I still find myself taking like NyQuil some nights and, and Advil PM because I am a tough sleeper. But it's like, I don't know if it's habit at this point because there are some nights I feel like I could just hit the pillow and go right out. And there are some nights I still, you know what the problem is? There are some nights I'll lay in bed and uh, I have such an obsessive mind that I'll just think about running. Uh, part of me will want to put on my running shoes and go out and, and I'll think about my race coming up. I'll think about what it feels like to cross the finish line and Next thing you know, it's four or five in the morning and I'm not able to get any sleep. And I have a, a, every, every day it's a 7 a.m. alarm. Even through the pandemic, I felt like, if anything, it's more necessary. Uh, even though I don't have work anymore, it's kind of just set the alarm for 7 a.m., get up and do it anyway. Wow. So you aimed pretty high. You didn't start with a 10K or a half marathon. You went straight to the ultra. <laughs> yeah, I call it stupidity or just getting a little into uh, David Goggins, who uh, was a uh, podcast guest I had heard on a podcast called the rich roll podcast who is this incredible Navy seal who went on to become one of the greatest ultra runners and his first race ever was an ultra marathon. And I don't know if that kind of influenced me or if in my head, I was kind of like, I, I really am always an all in or, or that's it. And what's more all in than, you know, crazy distances. Sure. I've seen that dude. He's always running. There's just a lot of video of him running. <laughs> He is insane. There was one point of his life where eight weekends in a row, he ran eight 100-mile races. And like an 100-mile race is enough to usually put some of the most talented runners out for six months. They won't run for another six months. He did it eight weekends in a row, and he wasn't stoned for any of it. That blows my mind. That's incredible. He's, he's made of something. Um, you know, when I was doing marathons, that last six miles was always brutal. You know, that's when you're getting like electrical impulses down your arm and you're, you're hitting the wall for sure. I don't envy Bonkin. that another eight miles on top of that or 33, you said. So that's another seven on top of the marathon. But yeah, um, this one, and that's kind of another one of the interesting things for me because I feel like a lot of marathoners who go into ultra marathons, they have this weird moment of their race where they hit that marathon mile and in their head, they're like, fuck, I, I, I got to keep going. But if you've never run a marathon before, you're not going to have that feeling. You're not going to feel like I just hit that marathon because you've never hit that. You know, you've never been in a race where you've hit that, only in training. I mean, I do have my first 30-mile training run at the end of this month just to kind of put myself at, at ultra distance, 30 miles, make sure it's all good to go. And then I'm going to take it down for the next month. And uh, August 31st to October 10th, I'll take it down. Mileage, I'll only go to 40, 50 a week just to bring myself in pretty good shape to the race. You've lost a lot of weight in this process. I have. In the past year and a half, I've lost. Now, I would say I got down to 183 pounds. So that was, uh, I lost 170 pounds. My highest was 354. Wow. That was uh, what I was, I would say two years ago when I was 23. I'm 25 now. When I was 23, I'd let my weight get up to about 354 pounds. And uh, yeah, I've taken it down since then. It wasn't always through running. Running is, I would say, started this past winter. That was for me when I started really getting into it. It was diet change at first, uh, more than anything, giving up gluten, which is not very exciting. It's not a giving up gluten isn't as flashy as endurance running. <laughs> so what's your diet like now? You can probably eat anything you want. 
Yeah. So my, uh, my diet now is I've actually, I found myself having really bad stomach issues again, which is why I gave up the gluten. It was a doctor told me I might have celiac disease. This was two years ago. So I gave up the gluten for an extended period of time. And then when I started getting up to 50 mile weeks, you know, two months ago or so, I found my body really not doing that well. And it's because I was still only eating one meal a day. I wasn't taking proper nutrition. And I called up a doctor and I was like, Hey, all this stuff's going on in my stomach again. What's up? And he's like, well, what's changed? I'm like, well, I'm running 50 miles a week. He's like, well, what supplements are you taking? What vitamins? What's your diet like? And I told him, well, no vitamins, no supplements. And I'm eating like one meal a day. And he's like, well, there's your answer right there. You know, you got to severely jack up your sodium intake, your food intake. So now I, I really don't care what I eat anymore. I love candy. I've always loved candy. That's my, people are like, how do you, how have you lost weight with the munchies? You know, because they know I'm very vocal about how stoned I am and how often it is. And I'm like, I never did give it up. You know, I just worked out harder to be able to eat three packs of sweet tarts a day if I wanted. Well, you're definitely burning some calories. I mean, when I, when I was into it, the last weeks of marathon training, the weight would just fall away. And I would even have like night sweats. I'd wake up just soaked in sweat because my metabolism, I think, was going overtime. Yeah, I weigh myself before every run and after every run. And I kind of adjust accordingly to how much liquids I then have to put in. I kind of try to end each night the same weight when I woke up to make sure I don't lose anything. Like I'm, I'm no longer at a point of my life where I'm really wanting to lose weight anymore. I've kind of gained about seven pounds. I'm sitting at about 190 now and I'm fine. And that's where my body's kind of staying with having to put so much liquids in because the New Jersey summers get pretty brutal sure. for running. I mean, it's not rare for me to lose anywhere from, you know, eight to 11 pounds on a run. A lot of water weight, obviously, but you top it off when you get back, like you said. Have you ever tried edibles when you're running? You know, I, I haven't done it yet because what scares me with edibles, and I, I very much am a, a regular edible consumer outside of athletics, is the unpredictability of it. You know, there are some times where I've, I've taken the same brand of edible twice and the way it hits me the second time isn't even the same way it hits me the first time. So I kind of feel like if I get to a brand that I trust a bit more where I feel like the reaction is pretty... Uh, similar, I think I'd test it out. But for right now, joints are really what works best for me, which weirdly probably isn't the best thing because of smoking on the lungs. You know, I smoke three, four joints a day. That's not the best for the lungs. Right. That would concern me a little. And then also with an edible, it just takes longer. You know, you might be a, a half hour into the run or, or you take it sooner, but it does last longer too. Yeah. So. I, I had the Belgium chocolate bar that was 400 milligrams. I, I've gotten two of them since. Uh, so I've had three of them. Each of them, I mean, don't get me wrong, the high is very intense. I don't eat them all in one shot. Me and my girlfriend, the first time we took it, we made the mistake of eating 100 milligrams each, which is a very normal number for us, anywhere from 100 to 250. But this particular chocolate was very strong. And we, we went out with a sober couple. So we take this edible, we're like, let's call our friends make them come get dinner with us. We sit down and she gets hit with it really bad. Like one of those edible, you know, one of those edible highs where you could tell she's going to not have a great night. And that's scary because she has the same tolerance as I do. So I know it's coming for me. I joked that it was like watching someone get hit with the same car you're about to get hit by. <laughs> I, at one point I literally turned to the other couple and I was like, are you guys not feeling the wind on your eyelashes right now? And uh, then, lo and behold, I got hit with it, and it, it turned really bad, and we ended up getting home. But then I, I took it down to 50 milligrams, 50-milligram 50 pieces. And when we did that, 
the high was pretty good. So I think if there was one, I'm going to try, it would be that chocolate. I like Kana, K-A-N-H-A, a really good brand. And they're, they come in little 10 milligram uh, gummies that sometimes I split those in half when I'm going to sleep. So you're way above me on terms of milligrams, but you know, I, I would experiment with that because your lungs, I notice, I, I don't like to inhale the soot and ash of, of a joint too much anymore. I, I do some dry vaping and that's kind of yeah. a little more gentle and, and not as intense, but you know, the edibles might, might work for you too. Do you use any CBD, any balms or anything? I don't, I've been sent a few from companies and I've never actually tried it. My mother, at one point I was sent one from a brand and my mom took it from me and she really enjoyed it from what I heard. Uh, I don't use any myself. I'm very much, uh, I just ice. That's it. I ice my knee a lot all day Um, after runs. I should try. uh, I've thought about CBD bombs. I just, you know, it's one of those things like there's so many, when you get into distance running, there's so many things that are on that checklist, you know, like just going to run every day, the amount of liquids I have to bring with me, my water vest, my handheld bottle. It's like there's so many things that are now getting caught. It's so expensive to, to be athletic. Yeah, it's harder and harder to get out the door. <laughs> I hate that. The, you know what really pisses me off about running is the running shoes. They all, you'd think they'd invent shoes by now that, that have a longer life than 350, 400 miles. You should pay me to hit 400 miles. If I'm running 400 miles in a month, you'd give me a free pair of shoes. Right. What are you wearing? What do you like? Uh, right now I'm really on a Hoka kick. I love them. Uh, I spent those this year and I, I like them a lot. Me too. They feel like you're floating or a cushy bottom that they're really good for trail running. Uh, cause trail running has really been something that I've fallen in love with kind of the overall, just there's something free about it, especially when you're stoned, but, uh, trail running to me, I'm not a very religious person, but it is the most spiritual I've ever felt in my life. Cause you have this angelic and very, serene environment like nature that 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 if there is a higher power it's been put here by whatever that power is you know it's this beautiful thing and then you're doing this masochistic long distance running breaking your body in nature alone it kind of feels like some weird human sacrifice hokas yeah i don't know where i got from hoka to that but hokas and mizuno I, i i always run between two different pairs yeah i ran in the woods up in michigan um in college, I worked on Mackinac Island. There was no cars allowed, and there was an eight-mile perimeter path, which was great. But then you could get up in the island, up the hills, and be in the woods. And yeah, like you describe, it's you know the Japanese call it forest bathing. It's there is something almost sacred about it. You you're just moving fast and under your own power, and there's nobody else out there, and, it, and it's really great. And it's ruthless. It's unreal. Like I've fallen many times. You no know, trail running is people. Uh, don't realize it's not just running forward. It's a lot of falling. It's a lot of miss. You know, you have to figure out, you have to plan. I, I tell people you got to plan 10 steps ahead. You know, I look ahead to see where's this route, where's this rock, you know, what am I going to propel off of? Is this a rock I could use to move forward or is this a rock that's going to roll my ankle if I jump on it? So it's like this really interesting thing where you have to be so in the moment and even looking forward a bit, but then you also have to be present with your breathing. It, it, we, to me, working in with it, it's just, it, it seems a bit more natural for me because, you know, weed comes from the ground. It's this natural thing. It just feels like nature's pre-workout. It's very interesting. I never thought it would have the ability to propel workouts the way it did because I was a lazy stoner for so long. There's a race up in the, the Bay Area called the Dipsy, D-I-P-S-E-A. Mm-hmm. And there was an old movie from probably the 70s with Bruce Dern. 
this race is a real thing. You got to be in a lottery to even get in it. It's really hard to get in, but it's super treacherous. People, you know, break their legs and fall down cliffs and stuff. It's yeah. always the old timers who win because they have some knowledge of the course, I guess. I don't know. You're right. I mean, you can always hit a route. You can get lost. I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, danger running through the woods. And nowadays there's a, a path here, but it's, there's too many people. And in the age of COVID, I don't want to sneak up behind somebody and be breathing heavily on them. So I'm kind of on the streets and running the hills right now. Yeah. I miss the woods. I did a street run today because that I got, we got my town in New Jersey. I got hit by a hurricane yesterday. So I went to my favorite trail today. It's called the Clayton park. It's a four mile loop. It's got about in those four miles, you get about a thousand feet of elevation gain. It's pretty brutal. All roots, uh, real tre- a lot of trees, and I went there this morning, and it was destroyed. I mean, there I took about maybe 20 steps, and I, it was just the trees were too big. You couldn't even get a run in. So I just I was in this weird moment where I'd already this, – this specific trail is 30 minutes from my house. Like I said earlier, the joint gets smoked 10 minutes before I get to the location. So now I'm standing at the trailhead. I need to do eight miles of a recovery run, and I'm like, fuck, should I go home? Or, but I'm like, then you're going to waste the high. So I just, I slapped on my hat, my handheld bottle, and just went on the road in front of the trail and just ran, you know, eight miles around the town. Because so I was like, I'm not going to waste this high. You know, Corona times have me really being, this is the scarcest I've ever been with marijuana. So, <laughs> so I'm nug to nug at this point. You were an athlete before this. You were a baseball player, right? I was. That was a, that actually had a large, I, I think that is why I've been able to jump so heavy into running because when I played baseball I was a pitcher and and pitching and running very much go hand in hand for the control of lactic acid through your body like after you you have a start you're supposed to run like my coach I had a coach that say I threw six innings he'd make me run you know three miles the next day or six miles whatever it was you know usually half or the full amount of how many innings you pitched uh I played up until college uh I had a few scholarships and I blew up my arm my 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 true first game like opening day of the NCAA season of, I guess it would be 2014, I uh, blew out my arm as a true freshman. Youch. The kind of classic throwing your arm out the way it happens? Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, it was, I think it was my second inning of work. I threw a change up in the dirt and I heard like very much, they don't lie. You hear the popping of your arm. I heard my arm explode and, uh, I kind of knew in that moment something was wrong. I'd been playing baseball since I was, you know, since I speak as long. There are pictures of me holding a bat at T-ball as a, you know, four-year-old. And uh, I kind of knew something was wrong. And I woke up the next morning and my arm was really swollen. I got an MRI and my uh, UCL, your ulnar collateral ligament, was 100% torn off the bone. So I had to get Tommy John surgery, which is uh, elbow reconstruction. They take a, for me specifically, they took a part of my right hamstring and drilled three holes in my elbow and tied it back in to replace the tendon. But I was never able to come back from it. A lot of, there's like a 75% success rate. I was not in that percentage. Do you have enough function in your daily life that it, you're just not able to throw a fastball anymore? <laughs> not able to throw a fastball anymore. Uh, there is definitely, you know, it's been, like I said, I'm 25 now. I got hurt when I was 18. So it's like, if you've had the same pain for seven years, it's like, is the pain gone or have you just adapted to it? That's where I think I am with it. Like, there are certain moments where I could really focus on it. And I'm like, oh, no, this still hurts on a daily basis. But then there are other moments where you kind of just forget about it. I will say being an athlete again, 
my body does feel overall better. I don't notice as much arm pain as I did when I was immobile and not running. And losing all that weight, that had to be a stress on your body as well. I don't think people realize the stress that that weight puts on you. I mean, it's when I come to think of it, it's like uh, it, I would have an extra 170 pounds on my midsection when I would go to tie my shoes. Like what that does to your back, what that does to your spine when you have, when it has to like, it's hard to describe, like your gut when you go to bend over to tie your shoes would really make your spine crooked. I was starting to get abnormalities back there because of just my body was no longer in a way or was functioning properly. You know, there's too much fat in a way. That's a big change to lose that much weight. You're doing it. Sounds like you're maintaining and uh, running will definitely keep the weight down. Yeah. And like I said, I had to find the balance, you know, I had to find the balance between athletics, but also still making sure I could be a kid who enjoyed candy as much as I do and, and weed and not really take away uh, rewarding yourself along the way is really such a big thing. You know, I always joke that the guy at the gas station around my house, which is where I go and buy candy every day, he must think I'm the strangest dude in the world because he saw me coming and buying candy at 350 pounds. And then he just saw me over the past year and a half still come in and lose 170 pounds while eating the same amount of candy. He's <laughs> like, he's probably wondering what the heck diet is this guy on? <laughs> he's still eating all that candy. <laughs> <laughs> So, there are times where I'll buy all the sweet tarts there and I'll be the one who has to open the box underneath it of sweet tarts. I think I'm the only one who buys sweet tarts. <laughs> when you're putting in 60 or 70 miles a week, you can eat ice cream, cake, whatever you want. Yeah, and the, the feeling of not feeling guilty is incredible because so much when, when you're 350 pounds eating that stuff, there is guilt and shame. I, I remember when I was still, when I was, you know, living with my parents and I was eating like that, I would, you know, they'd be to bed before me. I'd get all this food at night. I would go to the garbage can and I would put my hand in it and make sure I put the garbage of this food, you know, three layers underneath garbage because I didn't want anyone to see what I did the night before. Now I could care less, you know, because people know I'm running 60, 70 miles. Who cares what you're eating? It's fuel. Everything's fuel at this point. There's something about running though. It's almost like self-flagellation. It's you, you get into that mental toughness and a guy like David Goggins, how, how can he make himself do that? But you do become acquainted with pain and, for me, being able to kind of compartmentalize it and say, okay, that's pain, but I'm running. I'm going to keep running as hard as I can. You learn about that. Yeah, pain. pain is, uh, I think the uh, – I forgot what the saying is. It's one of the, uh, the guy who uh, – Ken Klobuchar, who is the creator of the Leadville 100, one of the toughest ultramarathons, he said, make friends with pain and you'll never hurt a day in your life. <laughs> but Goggins has this similar saying where he's like, the, you know, I, I, I pushed to the other side of pain and what I found on that other side was just pure beauty. And, and there is truth to that. On the other side of pain is, is a world of imagination that I didn't know existed. You know, I, I remember when I, when I heard Goggins, I, that's when I started diving into this world of ultra running. It, it, it piqued my interest. Because anytime you hear of a community of people pushing themselves beyond physical limits, you're like, let me, let me dive a bit more into this. And I, I would watch these documentaries of ultra runners and all of them, whether they were first place or finishing 30th, 40th, when they hit that finish line, a high majority of them were in tears. Not upset, you know, very ha – and, and that is what struck out to me where I was like, there's this, this thing that these people are accomplishing and it's moving them to tears. So that, that is worth exploring for me. I'm like, this must be a very powerful thing. It happened to me after Boston. I ran it and there was just no controlling it. I just <laughs> – I could not – You, you know. ran the Boston? I did, yeah. I did it twice. Oh, that's incredible. The whole thing about the pain is – 
what's possible. When you start out, you can't possibly cover that ground in that time. But as you work at it, you're physiologically changing what's possible for your body. And that in itself is, is very instructive and very gratifying, I find. Yeah, and, and so much of it is just tricking your mind or just pushing a bit harder. I remember I was already into running before I had you know, learned of David Goggins. I was already a runner at that point, but people were telling me, you got to listen to this guy. You got to listen to this guy. So I remember one morning it was cold. I would run the boardwalk in New Jersey in the winter because it was, it was a bit extra cold and windy down there. It would really whip you in the face. And, I'm, and I was supposed to do – the most I was doing at that time was three, four-mile runs. And I listened to Goggins for the first time that morning. And I'm blown away. You know, I set my alarm for 6 a.m. The first, you know, two hours of the day are spent dry – or hours spent driving listening to him on the way to the beach. And I'm invested. I'm like, this guy's got the key. He knows how to push. So at this point, I'm running with just sweatshirt, shorts, and I would hold my water bottle. I didn't have any gear at the time. It's maybe 20 degrees out. I dropped the water bottle. I would say less than a mile into the run, maybe 10 steps, and it hits off the boardwalk, rolls onto the beach, and goes away. I have no chance of getting this water bottle. So now I'm in this motor. I'm like, I'm not going to be able to get through these four miles. But something snapped in my head, and that day, without any hydration, I ran a half marathon without wow. ever going longer than you know four miles, five miles in my life. And it was in that moment where I was like, okay, he was onto something. We are capable of a lot more than we know. And that's when something really snapped in me, where I was like, I'm not even in top shape right now, and I just pulled this off. So what could happen if some training's put in? Right. You obviously transformed your body, and you can transform your, your mind and your will as well. I got a lot out of it. I, I just turned 60, and I'm still running, and the knees are holding up. And you look damn good. <laughs> well, thanks. I mean, you can deny through your 40s that you've lost a step. I mean, I would go to races and still kind of place pretty well in my age group. Now, it's always possible because there's a few, few guys in my age group even running. So if you show up, you're in contention. And, you know, I still get a lot out of it. It's definitely possible to overdo. I mean, you, you've seen runners who are just too tight. When you're putting in 60, 70 miles, yoga might be a good thing too, just some counter stretches and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, people have to really – you got to take care of yourself. I'm at the chiropractor two times a week. You know, you got to find yourself a chiropractor who, one, you can become friends with, who gives you some good deals, and two, understands how hard you want to push. You don't want a doctor who's going to tell you no. You want to find a doctor who's going to tell you, okay, and this is how I'm going to get you there. And, you know, my guy, I'm with him two days a week, and whether it's he's got some of these new laser treatments on the knee, massaging, it, it, it's a world of difference. And working in swimming has really uh, been something cool for me. Uh, what I do is I kind of sometimes I'll just smoke, and I'll go in the pool, I'll do some laps, but then I'll also float there and kind of do like bicycle kicks in the pool to just propel myself to the top of the water and just work out the joints. I feel like when you're in the water, you could really feel where the pain is centralized in your legs. You could kind of work on that a bit more. I blew out the IT band and that set me back, but I put a vest on and get in the water and just run. And that resistance was great. You're not getting the pounding, but you're getting the resistance. You're a working comic. And right now I feel like people need to laugh more than ever. You know, we're still in lockdown so how is that working for you? Are you able to get out and work or are you doing different things? Are you, are you doing Zoom or? Yeah, so my place in New Jersey is, uh, it's quite great because I'm in central New Jersey uh, in a town called Manalathan. So I'm about 
on a good day, an hour drive from Manhattan. My girlfriend lives in Astoria, Queens, so a lot of my time is spent living in the city. Uh, New York has come back a bit. Outdoor shows, you know, we're not anywhere near indoor clubs. We have a lot of shows right now in parks. A lot of the parks are allowing stand-up to happen. One club specifically, Stand Up New York, kind of has monopolized a few of the parks, and they're running shows, you know, paid spots. It's like you're doing spot at the club, except it's in a park. That's been fun. We've had a lot of rooftop shows. There's some venues that have opened up their roofs to do stand-up on. And it's kind of uh, a lot of comics. It, it's this weird thing because, right, it, it, if you were to talk to me eight months ago, I would tell you outdoor comedy is the worst type of comedy show that exists. It really was. I mean, if you had an outdoor gig, you weren't looking forward to it. Laughter dies in the air. Laughter, you know, it, laughter does need walls to bounce off. You do need a, a good sound system. You do need people sitting down, comfortable drinks. Outdoor shows were our least favorite thing. Now, it's kind of this very, it feels kind of Woodstocky almost. You know, you're performing on lawns for groups of people. It, I personally am loving it. I, it people want to laugh. They don't necessarily want to hear about coronavirus. They just want to hear jokes. And it just feels more intimate. Stand-up already felt intimate to me, but now it feels even more intimate, like campfire stories kind of. You're just all outside in a park. It's tough, though. Don't get me wrong. You're getting heckled by trains, car horns. <laughs> I had a guy selling, just walk in front of me in the park selling hand-mixed margaritas as if I wasn't doing stand-up. <laughs> Some states, though, have opened it up. Like, I just got an email today from one of the clubs that work a lot in Chicago, and they're like, hey, how would you feel about coming back in September October? We're at 50% capacity indoor shows you know so it's like it, it, it's this weird thing where there's enough there to make you feel like stand up still here but not enough to make you forget about the past and how much did exist i mean this still isn't a normal for us this right. is very weird the fine financially the money hasn't been there you know because private gigs where you made a lot of money and privates aren't existing right now uh, i that's personally why i've gotten so into running because i I feel right now there, there's more of an avenue for me to let my voice be heard and, and have financial rewards in that field, in the motivation field, the inspiration field, because uh, comedy just isn't here right now. I think people, what I've learned through all this is, I mean, people need laughter, but I also, there's, a, there's an interesting feeling to every week know there's messages coming in from people, you know, of their scale saying, dude, you're literally the reason I started this. You know, I've, I've started running because you haven't run in 15 years. And I'm like, all right, this is a feeling too that I want to explore. I love this idea that people are making changes because of small things that I've done. And I've never posted my workouts online to, to brag. It's always self-accountability. You know, it's a reason it, I get up and do it. And I know because people are looking forward to it. Well, there are ways to share that now. I mean, do you use uh, Strava or any of those apps to track? Your yeah, I, I track my runs with Strava. I just started using it, uh, I would say, maybe last week or two weeks ago. I was using just like Run Tracker, and then enough people were like, you got to get on Strava, man. So I was like, all right, I'll get on Strava. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, I, I didn't have that years ago. I, I just had a gym fix runner's log. And, you know, if I drove the route, then I could look at my Ironman and figure my <laughs> per mile pace. But now you have so much data, you can have the, the heart monitor and all that stuff. And uh, Yeah, I've never done any of that. I still don't have a nice running watch. I mean, I need to invest in that because uh, I take a Nathan handheld bottle and then I, I take my phone out of its case and just put it in the little pouch on the bottle. But my, I'm not even lying, my iPhone sucks at holding a charge now because of how wet it gets in there. I've taken it through, you know, I run through storms. I've taken it out in the water with my own sweat getting in there, my iPhone just isn't working the same. But then you go and you look at these garments and they're like 200, $300. Yeah. 
I tried a Samsung and I sent it back. It, it kept telling me to get up and move and I just couldn't handle that. <laughs> I don't want to. I wouldn't be able to handle it. I'd be like, please shut up. I'll move when I want to. I don't know if you're at a crossroads or if there's a way to combine comedy and being a running, an inspirational running figure. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, I think it, it's not even so much a crossroads. It's just, it's an adaption. You know, I'll find a way to include both because at the end of the day, I know that I'll be doing stand-up till the day that I die. And I've been doing it since I was a teenager. It is the one thing that I've loved more than anything. I'll never go away from stand-up. It's just a matter of, is there another, I, I do this all under the umbrella of comedy. You know, it, if I could get runners on my fan base, then that's more people who are here to see your comedy, you know? Last year, I had a lot of stoners come on board because I would post more weed jokes. Uh, now I have people coming on board because the weight loss and running. It's like, to me, it, it's not really about one field or the other. It's just about the overall umbrella, you know? It's just people becoming aware of whatever body of work you're doing. If they want to like me for my weight loss, my comedy, just... It's I do it all, you know? It's like uh, Jesse Itzler says, building the life resume. And that's what I feel like I'm doing. I'm just adding things to the life resume at this point. That's part of comedy is your identity, right? I mean, most of the comics we think of, there's some idea of them we have in mind. A lot of times it's racial or whatever it is. Maybe you have a niche there. Yeah, and the cool thing about doing stand-up now is, you know, I, I don't want to toot my own horn, but as someone who's now like an attractive young person, when instead of a 350 pound weird looking fella, it, it, it's a completely new world. You know, it, I feel like I'm starting over again, not in terms of creativity or how funny I am or where I am, but it feels like I'm doing stand up as a new person. You know, uh, when it, it doesn't feel like I'm doing comedy as the same person anymore, which has really been fun to see because it, it's like a new project. It's, it's, how I, it's easy to make being fat funny, but how do you make being an ultra runner funny? Was that part of your act before poking fun at yourself for your size? I wouldn't say that I was a comic who relied heavily on fat material, but it was something that I had, you know, it was like any elephant in the room where it was just easy to address. You know, I feel like if you go up there and you're fat and you don't talk, you don't mention that you're fat. People are like, does this guy not know he's fat? <laughs> so you would, you would bring it up from time to time. But uh, I, don't, I think when the weight loss really started to happen was I wrote down my act because a lot of the reason I was putting off losing weight because I would tell myself it's easier to be a fat comic, which there's a lot of statistics behind that and that might prove that it is uh, from a career standpoint. But I wrote down my act and I was like, dude, in the current jokes you're telling, you have two fat jokes. That's not enough to, to stay unhealthy. That's a ridiculous thing to do to jeopardize your life you know, for your career. There were guys who did that. I mean, John Candy and some of the other Saturday Night Live guys were definitely, that was part of their identity. For sure. And, and I, what, what stood out to me was that, you know, I am, when I started losing weight, I was 23. Uh, that is a very formative age. You know, uh, neuroplasticity of the brain, they say, for it's about 28 years old is when the brain really gets into this mode where it's harder to make changes. So I, I told myself, you know, if I could get into this, this mode at 23, 25 to 25, lose this weight, become this runner, there's a good chance I could make this, you know, how my brain functions throughout life. So this was my last ditch effort, you know, because there were a lot of talks, a lot of family members, like you should get the weight loss surgery. I had talked about it. I had researched it. There was one called Obalon that I was really thinking of doing where it's a series of swallowing three different balloons that take up space in your stomach. And then 
I had this moment where I was like, dude, you, you were a college athlete. You're telling me you got to swallow balloons to lose weight. I was like, that sounds so unhealthy swallowing balloons. I was like, just do it yourself. Yeah, that sounds terrible. <laughs> and it, it scared me. It scared me that, that I was like, how am I at a point in my life where people are telling me maybe swallowing balloons is the healthy decision for me? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you didn't take that route. Yeah, who knows what it'd be like running with balloons in your stomach. <laughs> maybe you'd float a bit more. It's got <laughs> like to be uncomfortable to have yeah. friggin' balloons in your stomach. No, maybe they could pump it up and you'll float above the track like the Tara Humara. <laughs> So I've been a copywriter all my career, and I was thinking about this before we got on. As a copywriter, it's creative work, and you know sometimes you're in a meeting with people, and they they're like, oh, "You're the writer. Can you come up with something?" And I always like, "Not right now. That's not how it works. I got to go back and just work this through my brain, and you know put something together, and then I'll show you." And over the course of my career, I started as a journalist, and it was always the who, what, where, when, why, and you would construct a story around that. And when I got into marketing, it's kind of the same thing what do you want the audience to know and how do you want them to feel? What do you want them to do? So you would construct messages around that. And then search engine optimization came along and Google kind of changed the game. If you thought somebody wanted to fix a dent in their car and you thought they were going to Google how to fix a dent, maybe that's not what they were putting in. Maybe it was something absolutely different. A lot of times it was. So yeah. I was just wondering from a comic standpoint, is there anything like that where you could type into Google <laughs> is this funny or not thank you uh i wish i mean th that's the interesting thing about comedy is that not only is it so i mean it's so personal to each person on what they find funny but even what you find funny today might not be what you found funny yesterday depending on what happened to you in that day so I feel like your audience is so personal and so all over the spectrum of personalities that you just have to throw stuff out there. So like, I would say a comedian's uh, optimization is the first, if you're a headliner and you're doing a 60 minute set, those first 10 minutes are like your optimization. You'll throw a few different jokes out there, whether it be observational, dirty, clean, self-deprecating, you'll throw out a few different styles and you'll see what that crowd is reacting to most. And then moving forward in those last 50 minutes, you'll try to cater the set. Not cater, but you'll, you'll try to work more of the material that you see that that crowd saw was working. Or then there's the flip side where you could just power through and try to get them to laugh at what you're going to say anyway. It's kind of like getting high. I mean, set and setting always matter. So you're, you're operating on many different levels, right? You're, you're reading the room. Maybe you have some prepared material. Maybe you're spontaneously just working off the crowd. There's a lot of different ways to tackle this, I imagine. Oh, for sure. And, and, and truthfully, it, as a performer, it's very hard to not bring your day into the set as well. So, you know, if I'm happy on stage, that set might go better than if I had a, if I had a really bad day and I bring that day on stage, that set may look a lot different than the night before when I had a great day. So it's like comedy really, live comedy, comedy to me is one of those things that just needs to be seen live because you're not ever going to get that moment again. It is a moment in time. It, it's a moment that only exists with you and that audience. There, there's a certain chemistry and a certain ebb and flow to the, to the uh, just the air of the, the room that I don't think could ever be replicated. Like you have comedy albums where we'll put a set of hours like on, like I'll tape a set at Zany's in Chicago and then put that onto a CD. But even that won't give you what it was like to be in that moment, whether it be in a comedy club or like now outdoor shows in a park, we are all part of something now, you know, it, you are part of this moment 
And it's hard to ever replicate that, I think. Right. Or even know what you're looking for. Like you walk into a room, you're sometimes the only way to know what that crowd is going to laugh at is to just watch the comics before you see how those comics did. And even that sometimes means nothing because there are times when great comics go up and do bad, you know, four comics go up who are pretty good and not do good. And then the fifth guy will go up and for some reason he'll do great. And he might just be as good as the other people, you know, it, it, comedy is one of these things that I've learned. There are no rhymes or reason. So it's a real art. I mean, you have to read the crowd. You have to bring everything that's going on into it. And as you said, be there in the moment. Yeah, and that's why I think I've found so much solace in trail running because it brings me back. Comedy is another one of these skills where you very much not only have to be in the moment and in the present, but your mind also has to be 10 steps ahead. You know, you have to think, all right, I'm going from this joke. Where am I going after this? Whereas trail running, you're like, all right, I, I, I see that stone coming up. I see that stone coming up. I see that root coming up. So it's like you're in the moment with this current step, but then you're also 10 steps ahead thinking, where is it going to go? And you got to trust your instincts. And I had a running coach who just said, just keep your eyes level and that you'll magically adjust to the trail. <laughs> um, Isn't that weird how that sometimes works? There's a mountain in New Jersey called Mount Tammany that I would never recommend anyone to run, but there are some times that I'll go there and run it, you know, or I'll say endurance hike up and then run down. And I've almost taken some really gnarly spills there, but it's like your feet for the most part, even when you're not looking, have this magical way to kind of just feel the terrain out. You're perceiving it and you don't even know it. Yeah, and I'm saying that as a guy who currently has a, a swollen and cut up knee from falling on a tree stump on a trail I run regularly. So I, I just yeah. hit the pavement a couple of weeks ago. I was just, I changed my shoes that day. I wore the Nikes instead of the Hoka's. I don't know what happened, but I just went down hard and wrenched my wrist and it took Ooh. me a couple of weeks to uh to recover that's the other thing when you age it's just everything takes longer you, you yeah, and that's kind of and it comes it's kind of like comedy you know you just have to be comfortable with the slip-ups you know if a joke doesn't work you can't just abandon the set and like when i was two miles into a run the other day of a, a half marathon run and i fall on a tree stump and, and my legs bleed and i'm like all right now i just readjust the game plan you know i still do the half marathon but I change the pace up. I make sure the gate's still there. And it's just kind of, I, I like things in life that could just be taken in in the moment and you process it and move forward. Yeah. And that to me is comedy. You know, comedy is moving forward and hopefully funny, forward and funny, I try to say. Do you have any comic heroes? Oh, plenty. I mean, whether it's dead people like Mitch Hedberg or Greg Giraldo, uh, one of the first comics really helped me out of my career was Kathleen Madigan. Uh, if we're going to go alive, comedians. Uh, I would say, though, for me, Greg Giraldo was, and Mitch Hedberg were the two most influential. I mean, Giraldo was this guy who was on roasts, but he was also a brilliant comedian. I mean, he was a Harvard-educated lawyer, went to, or maybe, I don't know, he, he went to one of the Ivy Leagues, for, he went to two Ivy League schools, like Columbia and Harvard. He was just, and he had this way of making very smart material seem like it was coming from an average Joe, where he would have, you know, regular old, dumb New York Italians laughing at geopolitical bits. And you're like, this guy's a genius. They don't even realize what they're laughing at. Mm -hmm. and, okay. uh, and then Hedberg was just next level for me because I love short jokes and he was the ultimate one-liner kind of stoner comic. Yeah, yeah, he was very unique, wasn't he? So unique. And, uh, you know, both those guys tragically died young. And that was something that I always heard. You know, when I, I was lucky to have a lot of success at a young age that kind of tapered out because I got too much of it too quickly which was fine with me, but uh, 
there was a period where everyone would joke, oh, you're, you're going to be famous, but you're going to die by the time you're 30. And I, I really believe that to be true because I was so out of shape and so unhealthy that I was like, all right, this is just the path I'm on. And all the guys I looked up to were comics who died young. So I was like, this seems fine with me. And then eventually it snapped in my head where I was like, well, if this is the truth that you're living, then you might actually put yourself on that path. And I don't think you want to be dead at 30. Right. A lot of guys in their 20s have to – your adolescence can go out for a long time if you're not careful. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it could become too accepted. You know, there are some behaviors – I mean, if you don't surround yourself with the people who are going to call you on your bullshit, you could stay in the same uh, hole for quite some time. And I was lucky enough to get to a point in my life where I decided to start surrounding myself with the people who were being a little more critical than not because I knew they were the ones who were going to ultimately help me towards my goals. A lot of the rock and roll was people who died at – the age of 27 and you know we're probably surrounded by people who said yes 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 whatever you want um, yeah i mean who's gonna tell hendrix not to take the drugs you know yeah. no tell me about the success you had were you a, a teenager still when when you were successful or how, how did you get started uh so when it became clear that my arm really wasn't i mean i guess i it was in the rehab process i started and i went to an open mic and i kind of i did really bad and then I went to an open mic in the city and it went well. And then I started barking, which means you would stand in front of a venue and try to get people in. And if you got a certain amount of people in, you'd get stage time. So like I, I made this very weird plan that I was always told at a young age, you had to do like five open mics a day to be successful in New York city. And I was a stubborn, you know, bratty kid. So I was like, I'm going to do no open mics. And that was the route I took for a while, you know? So it was this interesting thing where I became this kid who, who started barking and getting stage time in clubs and it got me better. And next thing you know, I'm getting club spots a year in. At two years in, I, I became the fastest comic to ever get past that, the legendary comedy seller. It's the biggest club in New York, probably the biggest comedy club in the US. It's unheard of for anyone who's two years in to get past that, but I got the audition and worked there for a year. And uh, after a year, they kind of saw through my bullshit and stopped using me. I wasn't good enough at the time, you know? Uh, there's... I was good for a two-year comic, but I was no comedy seller comic. And uh, that was one of the first downfalls. I mean, I would never say I had a ton of success. I had a few TV appearances. You know, there was a show called Gotham Comedy Live I did a few times. I did Getting Dug With High, which was a good show. I was, on a, I was a panelist on a Fox News show called Red Eye. Uh, so, like, there was some things popping up. Uh, but the problem was... Well, what happened with me was the comedy seller. That was the big change for me. Because when they stopped using me, it was a very big moment for me. Because I had, I put so much of my investment into comedy. That happiness has revolved around how stand-up is going. Because stand-up is one of these jobs where you really need to just go all in or, or nothing. So you, everything in your life starts to revolve around it. You're happy when stand-up's going well. So for a year of my life, I was, you know, blissful. I'm sure I was way overweight, but I was at the cellar, so it was all fine. When the seller went away, I was in this weird moment where I was like, all right, now you're a 23-year-old comic who's 350 pounds, and you're not in the cellar anymore. So are you going to find your own happiness because comedy isn't giving you the happiness anymore? That's a moment, yeah. That was the most success, though. The comedy seller for me, like if I had to trace back the biggest success in my life, it would be that's how important that club is for comedy, is like getting in that triumphs, any TV appearance, any article written, any tour that I put together. You know, I had done 30 city tours that I put together myself. Getting into the cellar was still the big one for me. And, and for a while, it upset me that I wasn't in there anymore. But the lessons I learned and the people I got to meet, you know, I got to eat dinner with Chris Rock, Louis C.K., become friends with Tracy Morgan, 
Like it, it was, uh, I got to hang out with Chappelle, go to a Dave Chappelle after party, which is, I saw things there that I don't think I'll ever see anywhere else. You know, I, I got to live that life for a while and I got to see that that wasn't actually what was going to bring me happiness. I mean, I still do hope to be a, you know, a famous comic. Why not? Who doesn't want that? But I, I'm, I'm very content in how I found ways to be happy outside of stand up now. Were you the, uh, like the class clown? Were you the funny kid all the time? 100%. I wouldn't say I was popular. There's a big difference between class clown and popular. But I definitely was always the person who like, it wasn't rare that when the first day of school came, the way the teacher alphabetized the desks, that Lamort was the one that would be front and center in the front of the room. It was never rare for teachers to know who I was going into their class because they would talk to the teacher from the year before. I remember one time I went to Catholic high school and uh, St. John Vianney, if you got enough detentions, you were put on the no dress down list. We would get like one dress down day a month where you could wear whatever you wanted. If you got too many detentions, you had to wear a uniform year round. So I was on that list very quickly. And uh, it was Christmas time and they would give us one big dress down day before that, but I had to wear my uniform. So I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna do that. So I came into school dressed as an elf. And not just like an elf, co I had booty shorts on, elf shoes. I had an entire elf costume decked out with bells. I had a hat, I had rosy cheeks, and I forgot that we had mass that day. <laughs> and mass was held in the, every, every student faculty member would come into the gymnasium, the priest would come in, and here I am having to go walk up and get the body and blood of Christ just decked out in jingle bells. <laughs> the, and you could hear a pin drop and you would just hear the rattling of my bells the whole way up. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a common thing for me. You know, I was always in trouble, you know, always in the dean's office, making jokes that I shouldn't have. And it, it was uh, it. I was I loved comedy. You know, when I played baseball, all my friends would listen to music before games to pump themselves up. I was listening to Bill Hicks, George Carlin, Mitch Hedberg. I was listening to stand up before big games because that was what I loved. Uh, and weirdly, I never thought I would do it until the day that I did it. You know, I just decided one week to do it. Your parents were supportive? and Yeah, my dad drove me to my first open mic. He came with me to my first few open mics because I was so nervous. How much is it a confidence game, standing up in front of a bunch of strangers and, and trying to convince them? I mean, to do it, it's a confidence game for sure. I mean, to get up there, it's a confidence game. But I think more than anything, comedy is timing. I mean, I, I know comics who have been doing it for 10 years who just haven't been able to figure out their cadence and they're not that funny because of that. You know, timing is everything. The, the ability to kind of hold that audience in the hand, in the palm of your hand, and know when you're going to hit them with the punchline, know when you're going to hit them with a the tag that gets extra laughs on the punchline. Like, it, it's so much of it is just timing, I think, for real. Yeah. Confidence plays a part, but I mean, that, that, I know some comics will have to get drunk to go up there. That was never me. For, for one reason or another, talking to the audience was never something that made me incredibly nervous. I get more nervous now, weirdly. So I guess because the blind confidence goes away. Like when I was 19 or 20, I would say 20 to, 20 to 21 was my most confident years in comedy. Now it's more realistic. You know, I, I am more nervous to go on stage now, but it's because I've lived through more. I've been through more comedy. I know what can happen up there. Is uh, cannabis part of your show? I mean, I, I, I definitely perform stoned. It's not rare for me because, you know, most of my life I am. Uh, I do a, a, a good amount of weed jokes, but I also do try to make it known that I'm not a stoner comedian. You know, I'm a comedian who happens to be stoned. 
I love joking about weed, but I don't like the stigma that comes with being like a stoner comic. For some reason, you're looked at as not being able to be as creative or as funny. It's like a, a hacky kind of thing. But then I'd make the argument where I'm like, Mitch Hedberg was a stoner comic. You know, that guy, those are clear stoned observations. Those are clear stoned thoughts. I bought an ant farm. Those motherfuckers ain't growing shit. I mean, that's such a stoned observation. That's a classic Edberg joke. Definitely gives you a perspective. And a lot of times it's, it's absurd. And that's funny. <laughs> yeah. I find so much humor in the absurd because it, it's just, give me a short, absurd one-liner that's goofy. I love that stuff. You have so much material. I mean, there's so many absurdities today that we're knee deep, neck deep in them. I mean, <laughs> you don't have to look too hard, right? Oh, that's for sure. What haven't we covered, Dan, that we should? You tell me. We talked a lot about running. <laughs> Is that the funny thing? When you get into running, you could just talk about it a lot. I'm afraid it's boring to some people who aren't runners, but I, yeah, I could talk about it all day. I mean, there's so many elements to it, you know, short distance, long distance, your, your training, your diet, your recovery, all that stuff. You Anyone know. who hasn't tried stoned running, I, they, so many people reach out to me. They're like, do you actually run stoned? I'm like, yeah. They're like, then they say, there's no way I could do it. And I'm like, well, have you ever tried it? No. Then how could you say that? I mean, sure, there's some downsides. The amount of times I've thought my headphones are bees in my ear. <laughs> a lot. A lot of times I've swatted my headphones out of my ear. Like, outside of that, although I had a buddy one time tell me, he's like, if I ever ran stoned, I think I'd forget how to run. I don't <laughs> think I'd remember. And I was like, that's not true. And then after he told me that the next day, I was like, how do you run? You're definitely going to listen to your body a little more. Like you said, those first few miles, you're kind of loosening up and, okay, is my, you know, are my quads tight or is my foot strike right? Things are going to occur to you that might escape your attention otherwise. Yeah, the, the only downside is when, you, when you're stoned to start the run, I found that sometimes I'll go out a little too quick. So I'm a little too, I'm not feeling the pain as much because I'm now stoned. So I'll go out and my splits will be a little too fast to start. And then, uh, so I've had to do a better job of that lately to kind of just tell myself that the stone portion of the run is the enjoying part. Don't push during it, just kind of take it all in, find the stride, get the pace down, and then push it at, you know, four, four miles, get about four in before I push. I can see how that could happen. Are you an indica guy or a sativa guy or does it matter? It, there was a point where I would have told you sativa, but at this point I've done so many long distance run on heavy indicas that I'm like, I don't think it matters to me anymore. I, I do. Although last week I had something called papaya. It was a strain called papaya and I've never had runs the way I've run on papaya. They were incredible. It was, an, it, was a, it was a hybrid, and it really was bringing me some great runs. Uh, this week, I'm on some weird indica-heavy one that, that hasn't been as fun to run on, but I still get it done anyway. I don't see a huge difference in the two for me anymore. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there's a, a strain that just gives you energy. It's like energy dope. And Gorilla Glue is that for me, which I know it's not that for a lot of people, but I would have some really solid runs on GG4. You have a podcast yourself now, don't you? I had one before Corona. So I was doing a podcast that was actually inside a deli. It was called In the Aisle. We would sit on milk crates in the middle of an aisle of an open deli and interview people. You know, people ranging from comedians to, you know, UFC fighters to Bobby Bacala from The Sopranos. You know, we, we had a range of guests, but because of COVID that, you know, you can't really sit on the floor of a deli and open your mouths anymore. So I, I'm currently... You know, my big issue was I feel like uh, we're in a time where podcasts really need a hook or like a, a point of view. 
and I was struggling to find one thinking moving forward, what could I do? And then someone was like, well, you are the hook. They're like, you have a following. You've lost 170 pounds. You're becoming an ultra runner. You're a stand-up comedian. They're like, your story is the hook. Just people want to listen to you. Just start a podcast again. I used to have a solo podcast where it was just me and people liked it. So I'm starting this one. Uh, we're in the process of starting. It's called On The Way with Dan Lamorne. It's just going to be interviews with people that I want to talk to that I've met on the way of life, You know, whether it's comedians or athletes or family members. It doesn't matter. Just people I want to have conversations with. And if it gets listens, it gets listens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's going to be a project that's I've gotten really into the Rich Roll podcast. Uh, I wasn't a big Rich Roll guy until recently and uh, just has conversations with people he finds interesting. And there's something really cool to that to me that I want to do. Yeah, I've listened to Conan somewhat. Conan O'Brien needs a friend. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah, he's always kind of absurd himself. But yeah, what the heck? It's a good time to do something like that. You know, yeah, and I want it to be, you know, comedy, but also not, you know, if I, I want to have a platform or if I want to just talk to another runner, I want to put that out there and, you know, just, I don't want to feel like I'm always having to be funny. And in the deli, there was this idea that we were a comedy podcast. So we were pushing for jokes. I just want honest conversation. You know, if, if humor pops up, which it will, because I'm going to try to make it funny, it'll be great. But I also just want the ability to kind of share what I've learned. You know, I've learned so much and I've been able to to correct a lot of the wrongs of my life. And if I could pass that on, and I've already seen some people taking interest in the story, so why not give them a little bit more? If I could help, you know, even one person each episode, that that's worth it to me. So you're on the, sitting on the floor in the deli. Is it totally spontaneous? If somebody walks by, are they part of the show? <laughs> we would. I mean, we would put up signs that would tell them like, hey, you're going to be on camera if you do come down because we would film those as well. But there were many episodes that we would leave in interactions where – people were coming down the aisle to get something and were completely thrown off by us. It was a lot of fun. You know, I do miss it. I miss the customer interactions more than anything. But for me to sit down, I had a co-host and we would have a guest or two. It was a lot for me because I I have issues uh, in conversation. Uh, I I myself am a bit on the spectrum, uh, uh, autism spectrum disorder, uh, formerly known as Asperger's. So it's very tough for me to be in like a, a conversation with three or four people and uh, it's hard for me to focus on one person. So I need to go back to a podcast where I'm the host and there's one guest because it's the only way my brain will allow me to focus on the conversation. Yeah. Manage it a little. Exactly. I think our listeners are going to get some value from hearing about your story and, and uh, the way cannabis has helped you along the way um, and continues to. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Well, thanks for making time. Um, Good luck cleaning up from the hurricane and all that stuff too. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's uh, the year stars that smash mouth once famously said the year start coming and they don't stop coming. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully we can, we can have you back on again sometime. I'm I'm curious about um, how the ultra is going to go and uh, I'll be. Yeah. I'm curious about how I'm going to smoke during it, how I'm going to plan my smoke breaks. You know, if, if the race directors will get mad, if I spark up a joint, you might want to bring some gummies. I mean, uh, you know, that I think the race will be a gummy day. That's why I think uh, September is going to be a big month of testing out edible running to see what works. Those goo packets, I would use those towards the the end of a marathon. And I'm a big uh, I'm a big energy bean guy. I love the Jelly Belly energy beans. There you go. And yeah. Honey Stinger. I'm a big Honey Stinger guy. Get some of those with some THC in them, and uh, you might might be on your if, way. Oh my God! If they made edible Honey Stingers, I think me and you just discovered something. We gotta we gotta contact Honey Stinger. For their California office. 
For sure. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Cannaboom Podcast with host Tom Stacy. If you like the show and want to know more, please check us out at Cannaboom with a K.com. And please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next week.